Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 36 this morning in a message that I'm preaching entitled, Who Can It Be Now? I, I am a child of the 70s and the 80s. And as such, a couple of weeks ago, the title of my sermon was lifted from that British punk band, The Clash. Some of y'all know them. Well, today, my title is lifted from an Australian new wave group. <laughs> Who can it be now? Some of y'all are singing that in your heads, and it's okay. Who can it be now? That's going to be the question of the hour. That's the question of the passage we're going to be studying. There's confusion about Jesus, who has taken his place in the middle of the temple and teaching during this Feast of Tabernacles. And there are questions swirling around about his identity. Is he the Christ or isn't he? Is he the promised Messiah or not? Do these Jewish officials, do they endorse him or do they revile him? It's interesting, the storyline of the Gospel of John that we've been in now for 30 weeks. The storyline of the gospel begins before the beginning. The gospel of John begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John and his account of Jesus's work and ministry begins before time. And then he comes to Jesus's life and his baptism by his cousin John the Baptist. And one of the things we discover about the gospel of John is that he really skips huge chunks of Jesus' life and ministry. For instance, in John's gospel, there is no birth narrative. There's no shepherds in the fields. There's no Mary and Joseph in the manger. There are no angels. There are no wise men coming. And what's curious about that is that, if you'll remember, whenever Jesus was on the cross, he commended his mother Mary to John's care. So John, no doubt, spent extended amount of time with Mary had heard all the stories about Jesus' birth and childhood, but he chose not to include it in his gospel account. Uh, John specifically focuses on certain areas of Jesus' three-year ministry and still very large sections of time that he skips over. Well, why does he do this? Of course, the very last verse of his gospel account tells us why he skipped over such large chunks of information. Look at what John 21 verse 20 says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But these that are recorded for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from the pen of the apostle John, they're recorded for us so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And by believing, we would have life in his name. That's why he's recorded what he's recorded. One of those missing chunks of Jesus's three-year ministry is between chapter 6 and chapter 7, uh, where we are right now. I told you before that the, that the chapter 6 is during the time of the Feast of Passover. It's the second of three Passovers that John records Jesus participating in during his public ministry. That occurs around April in our calendar. And now chapter 7 occurs in March, the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths, Sukkot, as it's said in Hebrew. That's just the Hebrew word for tent. 
And so here we are six months later, and, and John just skips this whole chunk of time. Why? Because he wants us to zero in and focus in on really a, a couple of days here in this passage. And so I told you last week, chapter 7 and chapter 8 focuses in on just a couple of days during the Feast of Tabernacles when Jesus is publicly teaching, when he takes a place in the temple. And throughout this teaching that John records over a couple of day period of time are some of the most profound statements that Jesus ever made. Look at this next slide. Here's some of the statements he makes that we'll be studying over the next six weeks or so. In chapter 7, verse 37, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Lord willing, we'll look at that next Sunday. John 8, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Chapter 8, verse 32, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Chapter 8, verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Chapter 8, verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And then chapter 8, verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. These are just a few of the incredibly profound statements Jesus makes in this public teaching time over a two-day period or so in the temple courts in Jerusalem during this feast. But to set this up, I would remind you what we considered last week. Last week, his brothers, his physical half-brothers, the sons of Mary and Joseph, they were encouraging, they were compelling Jesus to go into Jerusalem, but not to teach They said, why don't you go to Jerusalem during this great feast and start doing some of your tricks? Show off your works, your wonders, your miracles. That's how you'll really get a crowd and really propel this movement. But what does John focus in on? He doesn't focus in on the miracles, even though Jesus' miraculous nature was well known. He focuses in on his teaching. And what transpires over the next six months from this point is really going to turn not just the history of Israel, but all of human history. You see, because he's six months from the last Passover, which means he's six months from the next Passover. And the next Passover, the third of Jesus' public ministry, is when he would be betrayed into the hands of the Jews, arrested, put on trial, executed on a Roman cross. The next six months that happen between the Feast of Booths and Passover, all of history lay in the balance. Let's read our focal passage today, John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. Hear it. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, 
when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? The first century Jewish historian Josephus records that of the three pilgrimage feasts that the people of Israel celebrated in the first century, that the most populated, the most popular that people came to was this Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Why? Because it was a very enjoyable time together. Like I said last week, it was like an eight-day family camping trip to the city of Jerusalem. And so people would be gathered around, and there would be bustling and teeming crowds, and they would be going from tent to tent and booth to booth and saying, oh, I like your tent. I like what you've done with it. And so it was a really fun, enjoyable time for people to gather together in Jerusalem. Again, this festival, this Feast of Tabernacles, commemorated God's sovereign saving power during the 40 years of wilderness wandering of the people of Israel. For 40 years after they were delivered from the oppression and slavery in Egypt, God led them through Moses in their wilderness wanderings. And they dwelt in tents, in tabernacles, in booths. They lived a nomadic life, and they would uproot and move from this area to another area. And so this was commemorating that time together. We also learned in the previous section that we studied that although Jesus initially came to Jerusalem discreetly, he came privately because they were seeking to kill him. About halfway through this festival, he enters the temple complex and he begins teaching publicly. He begins proclaiming truth publicly and everyone marveled at his teaching. How does this guy teach like this when he's not gone to any of the right universities? He hasn't studied. Now, those who were from out of town, not familiar with the political wranglings of Jerusalem, when Jesus said people are trying to kill him, they were like, you're crazy. You got a demon. Who's trying to kill you? But those who were familiar with the the political things going on among the religious elite in Jerusalem, they were well aware of the conspiracy to take Jesus out. Why? Because he had the audacity to confront their theology, their traditions, and to even question their authority. And that really leads to the first thing I want us to see in this passage, three things in particular. Number one, I want us to think about the people's confusion. Uh, There's some confusion among the crowds and among the people that are hearing Jesus teach there. Uh, Most of them are fully aware of Jesus' claims to be Messiah. They're fully aware of his miraculous powers that he's demonstrated throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria. They're fully aware even of his claims to be the Son of God, to be deity in human flesh. But they consider the politics of the situation. They consider the politics of what's happening in Jerusalem, and they've got some confusion. In fact, we really see their confusion in two ways. First of all, they're confused about the leader's ambivalence towards Jesus. Why aren't they doing anything? Why are they ambivalent about him? He's there speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. I thought they wanted to kill him. Why did they let him have free reign? 
Now, we know that the religious leaders in Jerusalem can't stand Jesus. They absolutely hate him. But here he is. He's in the temple. He's preaching publicly. And he seems to be given full freedom to speak and to talk in what is, for all intents and purposes, their turf. They control what happens in the temple. They're in charge of the agenda in the courts of the temple. And one thing that does not make sense to the people is to see Jesus' teaching and their seeming unwillingness to stop him from teaching in a place they control the agenda. We see this happening in modern times, don't we? There's been a lot of publicity over the last couple of years about public school board meetings and parents showing up in droves at these public school board meetings and giving public outcry to some of the things that they see in school boards that are difficult and troubling. So people will confront curriculum that has critical theory in its curriculum. We've seen people confront school boards about um, homosexuality and transgender ideology within school systems. And even there's been confrontation in school board meetings about what else can be, we could describe it as pornography within children's libraries at the schools. And so there's been many instances. I've watched videos where parents have come to the public talking time of the agenda, and they've gone to a microphone, and they begin to simply read a book from the school library, and the moderator, the school board chairman, mutes the microphone. says, you can't read that in here. That's vulgar. Well, what is it doing in the library, right? We, uh, my point is this. The moderator, the school board chairman, controls the agenda and who gets to talk and who doesn't get to talk. We understand this concept. But here we are in Jerusalem, and here's Jesus speaking publicly. He's been given an open mic with an unlimited time limit. Nobody's muting his mic. And the people are confused. Wait a second. I thought these people that wanted Jesus dead are in charge of the agenda here in the temple. Why are they letting Jesus speak openly. It's perplexing to them. In fact, the only conclusion they can draw is this. Well, they must recognize he really is the Messiah. Otherwise, why would they be giving him an open mic? That was, of course, completely an inaccurate assumption. They did not think Jesus was the Messiah. The religious leaders had not changed their opinion about Jesus. One iota, in fact, just the opposite, They were even more incensed and seething with anger about Jesus publicly confronting their position. They wanted him dead. But Jesus is openly preaching on their turf. How can this be? Well, in the flow of the narrative, the inspired gospel writer John actually gives a little commentary that lets us know why Jesus was able to preach unencumbered. Look at what he says in verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Here's why. Because his hour had not yet come. Friend, the reason they did not, the reason they could not silence Jesus from speaking publicly is because God had an ordained schedule. God had an ordained timetable. God planned for Jesus to die for sinners, yes. God planned for Jesus to be silent before his accusers, yes. But now would not be that time. 
He would be silent in six months. He would stand before his accusers and not open his mouth in defense. In fact, Isaiah the prophet predicted that Jesus would be silent. Notice what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he, Jesus, opened not his mouth. That's in six months. But today, during the Feast of Tabernacles, he's openly proclaiming the truth. And he could not be silenced. I love the way Bible scholar A.W. Pink describes this reality. He says, they could no more arrest Christ than they could stop the sun from shining. Until God's foreordained hour struck and the incarnate sun bowed to his father's good pleasure, he was immortal. And friend, the same is true for you. The same is true for you. If you are a child of God and dwelt by his spirit, I made this statement before from this pulpit, but it certainly bears repeating. Look at this next slide. The child of God is invincible in this world until God's done using you. Invincible. They can't do anything to you if God is using you as an honorable vessel in his hands. So the people have some confusion about the religious leaders' ambivalence, thinking, well, maybe they are approving and endorsing Jesus as the Messiah. No, they're not confused. They don't like him, but he is invincible. Look at the second area of confusion. Not only are they confused about the leaders' ambivalence towards Jesus, but they're confused about the Lord's appearing. There were some commonly held beliefs about the coming Messiah and the characteristics they thought would be associated with the Messiah, with the Christ, when he comes. And Jesus seems to not meet one of their assumptions, but then he does meet another assumption, and so there's some confusion about the appearing. Is it him or is it not? Who can it be now, right? The first assumption they had about the appearing, we can see in verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So this assumption about the appearing of Christ being suddenly and out of nowhere, all of a sudden, boom, the the Messiah is just going to show up on the scene. This seems to be a a misinterpretation of Malachi 3.1, which says, the Lord you seek will come suddenly. So this tradition had developed among the people that, well, when Messiah comes, he's just going to burst suddenly onto the scene. Nobody's going to know where he comes from. And the crowd concluded, since we know where Jesus comes from, we know who his parents are. We know he comes from that backwoods, podunk town, Nazareth, up in Galilee. He obviously can't be the Messiah. He obviously can't be the Christ. And Jesus confronts their flawed understanding and their flawed conclusion. Look at verse 28. And following, John writes, so Jesus proclaimed. Let me stop right there. That word proclaimed is only used four times to describe Jesus' speaking tone. This word means to speak at the top of your lungs, to yell. (laughs) Just like some preachers, when they want to get their point across, they raise the decibels a little bit, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. He goes from a regular speaking tone to a confrontational, loud voice. What does he say? So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I'm from? 
D.A. Carson, in his commentary that I read this week, said, it might be better to put a question mark after those two statements. Jesus is asking this incredulous question. You think you know me? You think you know where I'm from? I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And you, know, you guys have no idea where I'm from. You think you know my origins? You think you know my family? You don't know diddly squat. Okay, Jesus may not have said diddly squat. <laughs> but that's the point. You don't know me. You think you know. You have no idea. Bottom line, they were led away from believing in Jesus because of their false expectations about what they thought Jesus should be. That doesn't happen today, does it? People led away from believing in Jesus because of their false expectations about what Jesus should be. We see it all the time. Some think the gospel of Jesus should have a political agenda, both on the left and on the right. People co-opt Jesus, and they co-opt his words for their own political ideals. Some are led away from Christ because they have a materialistic idea about Jesus. Those ideas being falsely touted by the so-called health and wealth gospel hucksters, that if you believe in Jesus, your bank account will be full. You'll have no problems. You'll have no sickness. And when that doesn't happen, they become embittered against this Jesus. Some people think Jesus will keep them away from the troubles of life, that my marriage will be perfect, that my kids will never disobey. <laughs> I laugh because it's comical. And then when those things start to happen, well, this must not be the real Jesus, or Jesus must not really be who he claims to be. Now, what Jesus said about your discipleship is, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have tribulation. So that's the first area of confusion about the Lord's appearing. Some thought he was just going to come out of nowhere and show up. Here's the second area. Look at verse 31. Yet many of the people, they did believe in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The word signs there is referring to his miracles, his wondrous works, the healings. Over and over, thousands of testimonies of supernatural healing, of Jesus bending the rules of nature turning water into wine, walking on the water, taking a few muffins and sardines and feeding upwards of 20,000 people. His miraculous signs were well known. And these people are saying, what more could Jesus do to authenticate the fact that he's the Messiah than all these wondrous works he has done? You see, they understood that Moses, the great deliverer of Israel from Egyptian captivity, that he was empowered by God to perform miraculous wonders. And they thought, well, the second deliverer, the new Messiah, he'll do similar works. And Jesus was doing similar works. And so these signs and wonders caused many of the people to believe that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. Yet there were many who did not believe. And so, again, there's confusion among the people. Here's the second thing I want us to notice from the passage. Not only the people's confusion, but number two, the ruler's conclusion. The religious rulers over Israel had reached a conclusion as to what they were going to do with this troublemaker named Jesus. 
this threat to their power and threat to their position. We see their conclusion in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. The leaders heard this muttering about Jesus. What is that? He's the talk of the town. In modern terms, we would say, Jesus was trending on Twitter. Hashtag, is he the Christ? Hashtag, who can it be now? Okay, maybe not. But they were hearing Jesus talk about, or Jesus being talked about, this muttering happening among the common folk. Could he be the Messiah? The last thing they wanted attached to the name of Jesus was any kind of messianic overtones. So what do they do? The chief priests and the Pharisees together sent officers to arrest Jesus. You may have heard the phrase before, politics makes strange bedfellows. Or maybe you've heard this phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The chief priests, made up of mostly Sadducees, were on the opposite end of the theological and political spectrum of the Pharisees. But they both had a mutual hatred for Jesus. So they were both together. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Let's take him out. And that was their intention. Why were they so motivated to see Jesus gone? Why were they so motivated to have him killed? Well, in the next chapter, chapter 8, which will be to this verse in a few weeks, Jesus pulls back the curtain, and we see who's moving the levers of their murderous plot. Look at John eight forty four. Jesus talking to them. says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. They were committed, absolutely committed to this goal and priority, kill Jesus. Why? Because Satan's moving the levers. He's running the show. He's their father. And friend, the same is true today. If you are being oppressed, if you are being maligned because of your faith in Jesus, They are held captive by the evil one to do his will. He's the one pulling the levers. But yet, Jesus would not be arrested. For six more months, he goes around Judea preaching the gospel. He would not be killed. Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll get to verse 45. I just had to throw this in here because it's so humorous to me. That when the officers they sent to arrest Jesus come back and report to these Pharisees and these Sadducees, they say, why didn't you arrest him? You remember what the guards said, their goon squad? They said, no one else ever spoke like this man. And then the chief priest said, has he deceived you too? But at the end of the day, the reason they didn't arrest Jesus here, again, verse 30, what John writes in his commentary, so they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Friend, you need to understand on that day and on this day, there is an invisible hand that is ordering human history. There is an invisible hand that has purposes and plans 
that he will accomplish. They didn't lay a hand on him because of the hand of God. His hour would come. It's the fall, early October, in the spring. Jesus would be arrested, handed over to the Romans, beaten, mocked, crucified, and killed, and buried in a grave. And Jesus was well aware of the divine timetable. How do we know that? Look at what he says in verse 33 of our focal passage. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. See, he was well aware that he was going to be arrested, abused, and hung on a cross and buried. But he was also well aware he was going to be raised from the dead and ascend to reign on high. I am going to him who sent me. And it is this knowledge of the joy that waited before him that he endured the cross. The joy that was set before him. I'm going to him who sent me. I opened our service praying and talking about a similar outlook that the Apostle Paul had. Paul said in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Friends, what's the worst they can do to us? Kill us? Well, guess what? We're with Jesus. That's gain. That's even better. And Jesus says, you can do what you want to me. I know where I'm going. I'm going to him who sent me. So we've seen the people's confusion. Is he the Christ or isn't he? We've seen the leader's conclusion. He must be killed. But that leads to the third thing I want us to see in this passage. Number three, the Lord's exclusion. The Lord's exclusion. Jesus gives this solemn warning in verse 34. He says, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. You see, Jesus, again, is going back to the Father's side. He's going back to reign and rule from heaven on high forever and ever. But those who reject Jesus in this life, those who forsake the kind and gracious offer of forgiveness in him, will one day be unable to find him. There is a small window of opportunity to believe. And instead of heeding the Lord's warning, what do they do? They scoff at his suggestion. Look at verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Now, for Jews, going into a Gentile, a Greek region or territory, was unthinkable. But what was even more preposterous is that any Jew in his right mind would actually teach the Holy Scriptures to the Greek-speaking people. Nobody would ever do this. They really didn't believe he was going to do that. This was something of intended to be a, a joke, a verbal insult, a burn, right? Kind of like a your mama joke. You ever heard those before? Your mama's so dumb, Jesus. I bet she raised a boy that's going to go teach the truth to the Greeks. Who'd ever do that? Ha, 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 gotcha. What's funny is there's a little irony in this. You see, the greatest dispersion 
among the Greek-speaking people was in the city of Ephesus in the first century. Dispersion is Jews who had been dispersed from Jerusalem. And it just so happens that scholars tell us that the Apostle John wrote this gospel account from the city of Ephesus to Greek-speaking people. So they're making jokes, your mama jokes, if you will, about Jesus going and teaching to the Greeks when John is literally in the greatest dispersion among the Greeks, teaching them Jesus. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? (laughs) Some of y'all got that one. Good. (laughs) But watch this. Of all the things that Jesus had said up until this point in his teaching in the temple, what was the one statement that really perplexed them? What was the one statement that really confused them? It's what Jesus said in verse 34. How do we know that? Because they repeated it to each other verbatim in verse 36. Look at it again. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And quote, where I am, you cannot come. This statement stuck in their minds. They couldn't shake it. What is he talking about? You'll seek me and you won't be able to find me. And where I am, you cannot come. It simply means this again. There's coming a time when people, all people, who don't know Jesus in this life will come to the harsh realization it's too late. And they've made a grave mistake in not receiving Christ. But when they get to that point of realization, again, the window of opportunity has closed. Friends, this is not a new idea in Scripture. All the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says God's Spirit will not always strive, will not always abide with man. You have a limited time of opportunity. Of course, this idea is all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the eternal regret that Jesus is talking about here, it's hell. Hell. And friends, the torment of hell is not just the physical torment of hell. One of the many myriads of torments that those who inhabit hell for eternity will encounter is the torment of the knowledge the window of opportunity is gone. Jesus will not be forgotten in hell. He will be unavailable in hell. It'll be impossible and every day will be a reminder that the door of heaven is shut forever. But you see, that's not the common conception today. The theology of Oprah and other worldly people is that everybody goes to heaven. Everybody gets there eventually. Well, okay, if there is a hell, well, the really, really, really bad people go there, but all the good people go to heaven, and after all, I'm good people. That's the conception today. Good people go to heaven. You know, it's hard to imagine a more clear and devastating statement from Jesus than this. You're going to be looking for me. (laughs) You're going to seek me. You're going to want the forgiveness that only I provide, but you will not be able to find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, how do we know this is what Jesus was talking about? How do we know he wasn't talking about going to Ephesus and teaching the Greeks like they suggested, some holiday in the Greek-speaking culture. 
The reason we know this is because Jesus repeated almost this exact same statement in the very next chapter. We'll get to it in in a couple of weeks, four weeks to be clear. But he adds a clarifying statement, a qualifier. You're going to seek me and not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Look at what chapter 8, verse 21 says and 24. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me. Watch this. And you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Friends, this is eternal matters here. Jesus says this is life and death. Heaven and hell. Nothing to be trifled with or joked about. Because the clear teaching of Scripture is this. All of us are sinners, right? All of us have broken God's law. It doesn't matter if you've broken one law, 100 laws, or 1 million laws. You still will stand before the bench of God's judgment a lawbreaker. You will be guilty, and you will be condemned. And every single one of us will stand before the bench of God's judgment to give an account for our lives. And only those who say, only Christ, only Christ will allow me admittance into the kingdom will know Jesus forever. This stark reality that every human soul stands on the precipice of eternity and will stand before their judge, the Lord God, This reality was apparently on the mind of one California pastor by the name of John MacArthur. Last week, John MacArthur wrote a letter to the governor of California, Governor Gavin Newsom. What prompted this letter was that Governor Newsom's official campaign began putting up these billboards in states across the country, and particularly states where Access to abortion is limited where people are trying to save the lives of babies. And Governor Newsom is putting these billboards all across the country, and the billboard simply says, need an abortion? California is ready to help. And then it gives a web address you can contact if you want to go to California and get an abortion. But here's what sent Dr. MacArthur over the edge. I don't know if you can read it or not, but Gavin Newsom quoted Jesus. The billboard says, love your neighbor, ostensibly neighboring states that limit abortion. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. It was this absolute twisting of the Scripture that prompted Dr. MacArthur to pen a -a two-and-a-half-page letter to Governor Newsom last week. In his two-and-a-half-page letter, Dr. MacArthur hit several topics. He talked about how as a governing official, he has been given the responsibility by God to govern with wisdom and with righteousness. He talked about the absolute brutal killing of innocent babies, and he confronts this blatant twisting of Scripture. Notice what he says in part in the letter. He says, You further compounded the wickedness of that murderous campaign with a reprehensible act of gross blasphemy 
quoting the very words of Jesus from Mark 12, 31, as if you could somehow twist his meaning and arrogate his name in favor of butchering unborn infants. You use the name and the words of Christ to promote the credo of Molech, Leviticus 20. It would be hard to imagine a greater sacrilege. But the way Dr. MacArthur concluded his letter is both gracious and profound. You see, because he confronted Governor Newsom as a man, a man standing on the precipice of eternity who will give account before the judge of the universe. Notice what he writes as I close. It's lengthy, but listen. (laughs) My concern, Governor Newsom, is that your own soul lives in grave eternal peril. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God, Romans 14, 12. One day, not very long from now, you will face that reality. Nothing is more certain. Quote, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. You will stand in the presence of the holy God who created you, who is your judge. He will demand that you give an account for how you have flouted his authority in your governing and how you have twisted his own holy word to rationalize it. As you look over the precipice of eternity, what will your answer be? When you look ahead of you and see that nothing awaits you but eternal misery, the just punishment for your sins, what will all the clever rationalizations and political talking points avail you for then? And by then it will be too late for any remedy of redemption. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31. My plea to you, sir, is that you would not let it come to that, that you would not go to that day of judgment apart from receiving forgiveness and righteousness through faith in Christ alone. So there is salvation for those who repent. Christ purchased full redemption for all who turn from wickedness, forsake their evil thoughts and actions, and trust fully in Him as Lord and Savior. Our church and countless Christians nationwide are praying for your full repentance. Please respond to the gospel. Forsake the path of wickedness you have pursued all your life. Turn to Christ and ask for forgiveness. Wow. I've got about 25 copies of the full letter in the front pew if you want one. Again, on that day, the great and the small, the powerful and the weak, the seemingly important that everybody knows, who have three million followers on Instagram, and the seemingly insignificant. We say sometimes the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You know what else is true? The ground is level at the bench of God's judgment. It doesn't matter who you are, what positions you hold in this life. If you have forsaken Christ in this life, the window is closed and there is no hope. Have you rejected Christ? Have you trusted in Him alone and not your own works and deeds? and level of some goodness that you think you've achieved, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, died in your place to pay the penalty for your sin so that all who trust in Him, 
those who believe in his name and have life everlasting. Do not let this day go by without trusting in Jesus alone. In fact, that leads to my last thought, which is a quote from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6, and I've included verse 7 as well on the screen. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Come to Jesus and receive the forgiveness that only he provides. Seek the Lord while he may be found.